We begin tonight in chapter 3, verse 14 of Ruth. Chapter 3, verse 14 of Ruth. If you're here new tonight, um, one of the things we love to do is I love going verse by verse, expository, Bible teaching, um, taking that verse and squeezing it to death, squeezing all that I can get out of it. And so um, I'm speaking to those of you here tonight who are Christians. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not primarily talking to, to unbelievers tonight, though I'm glad that you're here. I'm here right now primarily for the saints to lay a banquet and feast for them that you would be nourished spiritually. And tonight we begin our, our seventh sermon in this wonderful short story. But for the sake of continuity, I'd like to quickly, quickly, with much brevity, recap for those of you who maybe have missed or have forgotten what's taken place up to this point. And as always, um, all of these sermons are, are online. You can go to the lynchburgcitychurch.com or, or SoundCloud. We put them online uh, for free um, for those of you who, who are interested. This book is written... Um, and named after one of the main characters, Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. We've said, I say this every week, I just think it's just so remarkable. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. This is the only book in the entire Old Testament that is named after a non-Israelite. Only book. And more to the point, it's named after a Moabite. That's a big deal because the Israelites had a very low view, very negative view of the Moabites. Kind of like how we, we view ISIS. We don't have a good view of them. So it's truly remarkable this book is named after her at all. It takes place during the days of the judges. It's a very dark time in Israelite history. This is pre-Israelite monarchy, pre-Israelite kings. During the days of the judges, a famine has come to Bethlehem, which you may remember means house of bread. And the story centers upon a man and his family, Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, their two children, Malon and Kilion. Elimelech makes the decision to move his family to the, the nearby border nation of Moab because there's food there. They get to Moab, Elimelech dies. His two sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry, honestly, women they shouldn't be marrying, and then Malon and Kilion die. And we're five verses into the story, and it's a very bleak scene, as Naomi has now buried her husband and buried her two sons, and she is essentially stuck in this land. There's still famine back in Bethlehem. She, she can't return. But God hasn't forgotten about Naomi. God hasn't forgotten about his people. I would remind you, some of you may be feeling that way. He hasn't forgotten about you either. Naomi's working out in the fields, chapter 1, verse 6. She hears that the Lord has come to the aid of his people, intervened on behalf of his people. He's lifted the famine, and she can go back. She packs up her things. She goes back to Bethlehem. Her two daughters, Orpah and Ruth, they really want to come with her. She does everything that she can to discourage her two daughter-in-laws, her two widowed Moabite daughters-in-law, from coming with her. As we explained in more detail back then, uh, Naomi is looking very much to an economic lens in a society and era within the ancient Near East in which for a woman to make it economically, like to have bread to eat, to have food, 
would be almost always directly linked with another man in her life, be it a husband or a father or if she was widowed, her sons. Naomi understands that the Israelite perception of the Moabites is very negative. If her two daughters-in-law would come with her, they'd have a difficult time integrating and fitting into that society. More to the point, they'd have about a better chance of being struck by lightning than actually finding a husband. So Orpah, Orpah stays in Moab, but Ruth, she's loyal to the end. She will not be swayed. She comes with Naomi. They arrive at the beginning of barley barley season, barley harvest. It's chapter 2. The narrator cues us in on a, an interesting clue that will uh, come up more later on in the story, but the fact that there is a, a relative of Elimelech whose name is Boaz. They get to Bethlehem. They've got to make it somehow. Naomi is considerably older than Ruth, so Ruth asks for her permission to go glean in the fields. It's a very dangerous thing for Ruth to go glean in the fields, as we talked about in previous sermons, but she goes and gleans in the field. There's no guarantee also, as you may remember, that she'll even be um, allowed to glean in the fields, as this right was often um, uh, not given to those people who it was actually set to provide for. And so she gets permission to go glean in a field. And it happens to be Boaz's field. Some of you are familiar with the story. Boaz happens to show up that day. He notices her. He's very good. He's very kind. He's very generous to Ruth. Ruth comes home that day. Naomi said, how'd it go? And she essentially has done about two weeks worth of work. She's got about two weeks worth of wages that she did in one day. Like this girl was killing it. And Naomi's like, well, what happened? It was like, I went to, I was the man's name of the field was Boaz. Boaz was the, ma- the owner of the field. It's Boaz. Okay. And the wheels at that point in chapter two begin turning in Naomi's mind. And, and she seems to hope at least, perhaps pray even, that God might use this man, Boaz, to redeem and help their family. Well, week after week goes by. <clears throat> Ruth comes home. Naomi says, hey, how'd it go? It went fine. Did he talk to you? Yeah. He said hi. Is that it? And that's kind of how it went every day. Boaz kind of a slow mover. Some of you kind of slow movers when it comes to romantic relationships, sitting on the the sidelines on the fence like Switzerland. And so, and so finally, after a few weeks, this goes, this happens. And and Naomi comes up with this plan, pretty crazy plan. We went into, into detail about this plan in the last sermon. But she tells Ruth that Ruth, we gotta do, we gotta do something, we gotta shake this up, we gotta change things up. So, she says, listen, the only time he's seeing you is when you're out hot, sweaty, you're just a hot mess in the field. So, you know what, Ruth? Take a bath, smell good, put some clothes on, I want you to go visit him in the middle of the night after he goes to sleep. He's gonna be at the threshing floor. Now, it's a little unusual. I'm just gonna comment again on this because in verse 14, right before, as we'll, we'll see, there's another mention of the threshing floor. It's unusual that Boaz is out in the first place in the middle of the night sleeping outside because typically you, everyone lived in the city. Like today, you live in the suburbs, you work in the city. There, you live in the city. Most of the time, you went and worked in the suburbs. And when the sun went down, you came into the city. You came behind the gates. You came behind the walls, into your homes. That's what you did. But it seems there was an exception at this time of the year during the harvest. At the threshing floor. Think giant fire pit on a hillside, um, rocks around the edge to kind of keep everything in. And it would be on a hillside uh, because the wind would more naturally blow by. And the harvesters would be there with their forks, throwing the barley, throwing the wheat in the air. The wind blows by. It catches the real lightweight pieces, the chaff, the insignificant portions, blows it away, leaving the heavy kernels of wheat or barley to drop to the threshing floor. They'd repeat this process until all the insignificant 
chaff had been blown away. But until they had time to inventory or sell or trade this, they would sleep out there with it. They'd make an exception this one time of the year, lest animals or thieves come. I mean, this was, this was income. Land, harvest, this was their money. These were dollars and cents. And so, the men would stay out there, and Naomi knows this is happening, so that's part of in her plan that she sets up for Ruth. So she says, go visit him, he'll be at the threshing floor, he'll be sleeping, go approach him. And so she does. She essentially proposes to Boaz, he says yes, it seems like we have this storybook ending, and yet there's now a problem. There's an obstacle. Boaz tells her, that he'd love to marry her, he wants to marry her, he'll do everything he can, but there is, according to Israelite custom, someone who essentially has first dibs. And he's got he's to clear it with this guy, and this guy may say no, this guy may say that he wants to marry her. There is a giant obstacle for them to be together. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I think sometimes in relationships, in the context, clearly here is this romantic relationship. I think sometimes in the context of relationship, if it's too easy, it's problematic. Um, now keep in mind, Naomi tells Ruth not to chase Boaz, but to get in his way. Go out in the middle of the night, you know, you're going to propose to him. She's not telling him to chase him. I, I like to remind you of this, because ladies, if you have to chase a guy to get him, there's a good chance you'll have to continue that to keep him. What she tells her to do is, go put yourself in his way. Go put yourself in his way. Let him know that you're interested, right? Hey, you need to change your Facebook status from in a relationship to single, okay? You need to take off, you need to take off your wedding ring. You know, your, your, you know, you've, your husband's been dead a long time. He may think that you're not ready to move on for whatever reason, but you need to go put yourself in his way. Nothing wrong with that, okay? Nothing wrong. Oh, you're sitting here in this pew? Oh, you mind if I sit here with you? You know, nothing wrong, ladies, with, with putting yourself in his way. Oh, you, you're going, oh, you're a Tuesday night small group. And Thursday. What are the odds, right? <laughs> well, doesn't this just work out great? Now, th- there's a fine line between putting yourself in his way and borderline creepy, so. <laughs> Walk that line well, ladies, but, but, I want to, there is a distinction between chasing him, putting yourself in his way. And so she puts himself, she puts herself in his way. He accepts her proposal, but yet there's this obstacle. There's another guy who essentially has first dibs. He has the right, if he wants to, to marry Ruth. And as I said, I don't think it's a bad thing when we come across obstacles. We come across obstacles all, all the time. The beginning of the story started with an obstacle. A famine is in the land. Elimelech had his back against the wall. Are we going to have food? Are we not going to have food? There's obstacles that come across our, in our lives all the time. It's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, oftentimes when we have obstacles, it can be a time where our faith really grows a lot. Some of you guys might be dating somebody. Some of you guys might be engaged to people, or you hope to one day be one of those two. And, you know, there's obstacles. Right? Well, Mom and dad, they don't want us to, or, or, well, we're still in school. Should we wait? Should we not? Well, it's, it's hard. There's not a lot of money. That's always a factor. Should we have a long engagement? No, like, that's going to be a big struggle with purity. Like, the longer we date, the longer we, we hold this out, like, the longer we're together, the temptation is going to be that much longer, much harder. 
So what do we do? There's, there's obstacles we face all the time. Some of you like a girl right now and she's dating another guy. Ah, it's an obstacle. It's an obstacle. <laughs> but they're not always bad things. And oftentimes obstacles increase our faith because when we face those obstacles, we're like, okay, um, God, I can't do this. Like you're the only one that can, can fix this, can, can work this out. And I think that's, that's important um, to remember that. To remember what Naomi's husband, Elimelech, what his name meant. Like, my God is king. You have a big God. He can overcome obstacles. You, you can't. Not on your own, but he can. Well, that's where we begin today in verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Okay. Some of you may remember this from sermon number six, but it is semi-scandalous what, what Naomi advised Ruth to do. While I said it is a unique situation in which the men are sleeping out in the fields at this time, it's also unique because this is the time of the year when the ladies of the night come out, the Proverbs 7 women, the strumpets, the... I'm out of, out of synonyms, like um, the prostitutes. Like <laughs> This is when they would come out and go and visit the men when they're out camping during this, like, this week or this period of time when they're out in the fields. And Boaz is obviously concerned, like Ruth's not this type of girl, but what is anyone to think if they see her leaving? Now when I first read this, I was like, okay, why does he tell her if he's so concerned? Wait, like, not, why not just tell her right then to leave? Why, why wait till the beginning of the morning? And to understand, like, this is a big party time that would often take place. And so in Boaz's mind, he's like, all right, don't go, don't go right now. You go right now, I mean, someone's bound to see you, so wait until everyone, you know, they're essentially plastered, they've, they've had their night of debauchery and frivolity, and, and then go, like right before the, the wee hours of the morning, then, then go. <clears throat> but what are people to think? That's... He doesn't want them to think poorly of her. He cares about not only his reputation, but he cares about Ruth's reputation. After all, he wants to marry her. The last thing he wants is for them to say, oh yeah, Boaz, he's engaged to that, that town prostitute, that Proverbs 7 girl. He doesn't want that. And of course, immediately the application jumps off the page is, are you like Boaz? You all have a reputation, for better or for worse. Perhaps some of you are trying to change your reputation. Perhaps you're known as the flirt, or that guy, or that girl, whatever that is. And I find that when it comes to reputation, there's usually one of two extremes. There's the people way over in this camp who quite frankly, don't care. They can think whatever they want to. Like, blah, blah, blah. And then there's the people over in this camp. These are the people pleasers. They are, they're more concerned about pleasing everyone than they are actually even with pleasing God. And, and usually it's, it's somewhere on either side. But the fact is we ought to care. Have you not heard that it was said? We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.20. That's Scripture. That's Paul. We, we ought to care whether we stain the name of Christ. Or lest you think, because there's always somebody, they're like, well, you know what, Boaz and Ruth like spent the night together. They didn't do anything, so therefore it's okay to spend the night at my boyfriend's house or my girlfriend's house because they did it, right? And nothing happened with them. There's always someone, and so I always have to correct this way of thinking. Um, I figure it's better to correct it than to call someone a moron. That being said, <laughs> this is descriptive, not prescriptive. This isn't, okay, well, I can go and do that. This is merely stating the facts, okay? Everyone always wants to think that they're somehow the exception to the rule. Okay, yeah, okay, you, I got it. There's that one time, right? That one time where you happen to be over at your boyfriend's apartment and you decide to propose to him that night, and so maybe you come in a little late after curfew. But other than that, no, you're probably not the exception to this rule. It's kind of like, when I say descriptive, not prescriptive, like Judas hung himself. Lest any of us say, well, Judas did it, so I can do it, right? Like, there, no, no. This is descriptive, not prescriptive, but at the central focus point of verse 14 is the word reputation. Are you like Boaz? Do you care? And the context of this is, Boaz is really concerned about the girl that he's essentially engaged to, her reputation. We ought to be like that. We have to care what people think. And to a certain degree, I think that's perfectly healthy and perfectly biblical. Which means, implications, practically, it's, yeah, like, it's probably not okay to to leave a a girl's apartment at 4 a.m. Well, nothing was happening. I got that. Maybe that is true. Nothing's happening here. But he understands what the perception might be. We're not doing anything. Yeah, I know. Maybe you're not doing anything. What's the perception? You leave 4 a.m.? Well, we're just watching a movie. Okay, there's a perception that people are going to have. Lest you stain the name of Christ that you claim to have. Do Do you care about protecting the reputation that you hold as followers of Christ? Lest someone say they're just like, Anybody else? Because that happens. They're just like, every, oh, they're, yeah, they're a Christian, whatever. Yeah, they were doing whatever, fill in the blank. They're just like everybody else. They're a joke. Some of you have roommates like that. And they claim the name of Christ, and yet they stain it all the while during the week with the impropriety which characterizes their life. I like Boaz. And the context here is a romantic relationship. I can make a lot of other applications, but it's, it's what's your reputation when you interact with people of the opposite sex? Boyfriend, girlfriend, or that guy that you can't figure out whether you're in a relationship or not. It's really confusing, whatever it is. What is that? What type of reputation do you have? What do people say about you? What's the perception? And clearly the context here is romantic relationships but I could apply this to things like alcohol or tobacco. Do I think it's a sin to consume such things? No. Do I think it could be a sin? Certainly. Could. I could make this application to to movies, TV shows. 
Oh, they, they watched that? That's interesting. Maybe, maybe nothing's going on, right? Tell you what, you see a picture on Facebook, and oh, there's Joe Decreon. He's at some club in Mexico. Are those, those, are, those three women next to him, like in the picture, are those his wife? Nope, they're not. Is that a beer in his hand? Pretty sure. There's a perception, but he wasn't doing anything. He was sharing the gospel, right? Which I have before in Mexico. And, um, but there's a perception that there is. Whether you're coming home at 4 a.m., walking out of the, the apartment, or, or there's a picture on Facebook or whatever, there's a perception. People are not going to stop and say, can, can you explain to me? Oh yeah, well, we were, I was at the club in Mexico, and they put hand the beer. And it, I actually, it was just a water bottle, and and those three girls were part of the missions team. From <laughs> no one ever cares. No one wants to hear the explanation. It's just boom, and then there's a judgment, and then and then what happens? You've you've just stained the name that that you bear. Are you like Boaz? Uh, it tends, if I had to guess, there's, you're, you're leaning toward one way or another. You're leaning, I don't care. They can, or, oh, I care. I gotta make everybody happy. And you're like so like off here. It's, it's, it's idolatrous because you're more concerned about pleasing everybody than you are even pleasing God. And so, it's also incorrect, but we ought to be like Boaz. We ought to be concerned about not only our reputation, but in this context, the reputation of the young woman that we are romantically interested in. And we ought to protect that at all costs. Verse 15. And he said, Bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Kind of strange. We'll we'll talk about this more in a second. Verses 16. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Verse 18, she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Several curious things that pop up in this text. The first is the reference to Boaz as the man. If you caught that, I'll go back to verse 16. End of 16, she says, she told her all that the man had done for her. Jump to 18. For the man will not rest. Naomi and Ruth both know the identity of the man. Every one of you know the identity of this man. Every reader would have known the identity of this man, and yet they keep referring to him as the man, as if his name is somehow a secret. Why is that? I wanted to know that, and so I thought perhaps some of you would as well. But what they're actually doing in referring to Boaz as the man is for these women, it is a way to speak about an absent male who, honestly, is socially their superior. This would have been a, a... a deferential, respectful way for them to refer to him. That being said, she gets back. Naomi, who I imagine probably didn't get a whole lot of sleep that night either, says, how did it go? Well, mom, 
she back briefed her and then said, yeah, by the way, he, he gave me this barley, which I thought was interesting in verse 15 because Boaz has a lot of things he's got on his mind that he has to think about. He's got to think, all right, Ruth needs to get back to Naomi without anyone seeing her lest they, lest somehow her reputation's tarnished. And I've got to meet with that guy at court today um, because that may be the difference between me getting to marry her and not. You know, like, kind of a big deal. And yet, in the middle of that, he's like, oh, wait, Ruth, come here, one more thing. Give this to your mom. Strange. In fact, out of all the things he's got on his plate, why, why should he really care at all about the fact that Naomi had this gift? Why should Boaz be concerned? Why should he be so interested in the fact that Ruth take home this gift to her mother-in-law, Naomi? And there are, I'll submit to you, a few different layers of answers. None which necessarily negates another, but one I think which is more optimal than the others. But first, why should he be so concerned that in the middle of her trying to get out of there, that she take back, have this extra stuff she has to carry, back to her mom, Naomi? And one of the explanations is because at the end of the day, Boaz's role as kinsman, as redeemer, it's not based on his relationship with Ruth. It's based on his relationship with Naomi. As we'll see next Sunday, the primary issue deals with the disposition of the lands that belong to Elimelech, which ultimately is based on his relationship to Naomi, not Ruth. Second, Another possible explanation for why he's overly concerned that Naomi have a gift when Ruth comes home is to show his appreciation to her. Boaz, by all accounts, is rather a slow mover. We discussed in sermon number six the, the reasons, the whys, the hows that that may have been factors. But if it wasn't for Naomi, Boaz wouldn't be semi-engaged at this point. Because Naomi's pretty far out there plan to get Ruth to come and see him and propose to him. And third and finally, I think this is probably the, the clearest reasons for why he's so concerned in the middle of essentially her morning flight out of the fields is because for Boaz, it's so important that Ruth have a gift to take home back to Naomi as a sign of good faith as a pledge for both good behavior and a promise for him to follow through on what he told Ruth to do everything that he could within his power to secure the right to marry her. And based on the response of Naomi in verse 18, it seems that this is also how she interprets his motives for the gift. Verse 18, she replied, this is Naomi now, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi, wait. He's going to settle this today. We're going to have an answer today. It's going to be worked out today. I know it. Not just because you told me, but because of the pledge that he's made in this gift. To follow through and do this. And so the advice that 
Naomi gives to Ruth at the end of chapter 3 is far different from the advice that she gives to Ruth at the beginning of chapter 3. She says, wait. Beginning of chapter 3, she says, go get in his way. And here she says, wait. Sometimes this is perhaps the hardest advice for us to receive. After we've done everything that we can to try to enact our influence, to try to manipulate the situation, then to just wait. It's not easy. That's where she's at. Some of you, that's where you're at. Trying to, trying to figure this relationship out. Because contextually, that's what this is about, right? Like, are we going to date? Are we not going to date? Are we going to get married? Are we not going to get married? Am I ever going to date or not? I don't know. Like, it, what, what, how is this going to play out? Like, is there going to be an internship for me over the summer? Is there going to be a job when I graduate? Like, what's the there? What's the next chapter? I don't like not knowing. I think Ruth does. This is hard. Like, I imagine this is hard for mom to say, like, he said he's going to do everything he can. I think he's going to. So sit tight. Wait. You've done everything you can. Wait. That's hard. That's not our natural response as Americans. No. As Americans, it's pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's, you're just a little smarter, a little bit more human ingenuity. But there comes a point for all of us. God, I've done everything I can. I don't know what else I can do. I don't, I don't know how this relationship's gonna work. Like, I don't know, like, if it, it's gonna work out or if it's not gonna work out. I don't know if we're going to get married or we're not going to get married. I don't know if there's going to be a job or there's not going to be a job. We'll put in every application. I don't know how the grades are going to turn out. I don't know. I don't have an answer. I want an answer. I don't have it. Hard to receive that advice. Hard to be on the receiving end. Hard to be where Ruth is sitting. Some of you are sitting where Ruth is at. You've got something going on. Maybe only you know about it right now. And you're like, yep, that's me. I'm Ruth right now. And I don't know what else to do. Because I've done everything that I can think of. It was about two or three months ago, I took a walk with a friend of mine around the neighborhood. My friend had come to a crossroads. Literally, will he stay? Will he go? What's how? What's going to happen? I don't know. And he was concerned. It was at a very Ruth-like point in his life, not knowing what the next chapter would be, not knowing what that would look like. So I told him the same thing I'll tell you. You'll know. God will show it to you. God will make it abundantly clear for you. What about if I'm going to date or not, or get married or not get married, or get married to that person, or have that job, or go there, or stay here? I don't. God will make it clear to you. 
might not be tonight, might not be tomorrow, might not be next week, next month, next year. There, I, I'm sure that he'll make it clear. So that's the good news. So you say, okay, okay. I believe that. Like everything right now, some of you are like, all right, everything in your, your head is saying, yep, 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 that's true. And then it's just part of you is just like, but oh, that's so hard. So what do I do then? You, you fight. You pray. You say, God, give, give me a peace despite the most crazy, anxious situation that I could possibly think of. Here's an example. I don't know if any of you are in a crazier, more anxious situation than Ruth is. I don't know if any of you are like literally in the next 24 hours you're going to figure out whether you're going to marry this person or not. That's Ruth. So if that's not you, the good news is you're in a less anxious, crazy situation than she is. But here's the thing. This is what you do. And I told my friend this. I said, you pray. I said, we'll pray right now. I pray. We'll pray, one, that God will give you a peace to calm you down. Because you're freaking out. As I imagine Ruth is probably too. And two, that God will help you to trust him. To trust him. To trust him with whatever's going on right now that perhaps no one knows about except you, that God will help you to trust him until he makes it clear what's next. So I want to know right now. I know. It's all I got. Say, so how can I do that? How, how am I able to do that? How am I able to ask for peace through the situation, not knowing the next chapter, how am I asked to ask him to give me that type of faith to trust him until he decides in his timing to make it clear to me? Because you have the same God that Naomi and Ruth have. You have the same God that Elimelech, whose name you may remember means my God is king. Because you have the God who's who told the stars to go in their places, who told the mountains to move, and they move, and you can't think but for a moment that your problem somehow is too big for him, the creator of the universe, who spoke the world into existence. I mean, he tells the mountains move, and they move, and you think he can't handle whatever it is that's going on in your life right now. If that's the case, then my friends, your God is too small. But he's not. He's monstrous and magnificent and glorious and satisfying. He is king. And the great thing about kings is kings can get things done after you've exhausted every option on your own self. I want the band to come. I'd like to pray. Lord, I imagine that there are people in these pews right now, in this moment, who are at a season in their life, much like Ruth. They don't know if this relationship's going to work out. They don't know if they're going to marry this person or not. They don't know where the 
the money or the job or the internship is going to come from. And so I pray that you would give them faith, God, to trust what you say. That you would give them a peace right now that just to calm down. To calm down. And that peace isn't just based off some mystical thing that I say it. It's based off giant realities. Giant realities bedded in the, the word of God. As Elimelech name declares, my God is king. And so I pray that you would help us to trust you with whatever anxiety, situation that we may be facing. Not knowing that next chapter, trust you. Give us that type of faith until in your timing, in your perfect timing, you make it abundantly clear to us which way to turn, whether we go or whether we stay. And in the meantime, help us to be like Boaz, to care about the reputation that we have in bearing the name of Christ. Amen.